Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I've got a lovely Agatha Christie mystery for you tonight to fall asleep to. And uh, before we get to this bedtime reading, I just want to say that this episode is sponsored by Sleep Bar from Dusker. If you listen to Sleepy every night, maybe you listen with earbuds or uh, maybe with your phone next to you. And while that is great, earbuds weren't designed to sleep in. I think you can agree. Uh, they can be uncomfortable, a little unwieldy. But now, imagine for a second, you're snuggled up in bed, fully relaxed, and my voice is magically playing into your ear through your pillow. No wires or earbuds, just total soft comfort. And in this imaginary world, my voice would even stop playing after you've drifted off, um, giving you blissful silence and a restful sleep. Thankfully, this does not have to be imaginary. This is what Sleep Bar does. I've been using Sleep Bar from Dusker, and it's excellent. And you can get a Sleep Bar too. Right now, they're offering sleepy listeners, that's you, 15% off your Sleep Bar order when you go to dusker.com and use the code SLEEPY. So, Sleep Bar, it's this little, elegant, flat, bone conduction speaker that you slip under your pillow and it turns your pillow into the comfiest earphone ever. It's honestly a mesmerizing way to listen to sleep sounds and it is the perfect way to listen to this show. I like putting the sleep bar uh, under my pillow right at the nape of my neck and it feels like uh, my favorite sleep sounds are just gently reverberating through my body and down my spine. It's like a sound massage to help you drift off. I love it. So stop letting your earphones ruin your hard-won serenity and try Sleep Bar from Dusker. Go to dusker.com and use code SLEEPY for 15% off your Sleep Bar order today. That's D-U-S-K-E-R.com and use code SLEEPY for 15% off. I'll also put the link for this in the details of this show. And now... I get to thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and be a part of making this show. Stacy Kincaid, Del Bell, Danielle, Linda Fatlin, Jack and Dean, Catherine Cummings, and Reading and Waiting. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, these are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a site where you can directly support the people who make the things that you like. So, if you uh, listen to Sleepy every night and it does help you get a better night's sleep, um, maybe it's become part of your routine, then consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar a month. There's cool perks for donating... Uh, $2 and $5 a month, but even if you donate $1, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you want to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. 
tonight, I'm going to be getting back to one of our absolute favorite authors to read on the Sleepy Podcast, and that is the work of Agatha Christie. She uh, has a, a few new works that have entered the public domain this year, which is very exciting. Um, so tonight we are going to be reading one of those, and the story is called The Mystery of the Blue Train. As always, it has um, Agatha Christie's incredible dialogue and descriptions, um, very, very rhythmic and kind of prosy and uh, relatively compelling. I think it does a really good job kind of sucking you in and being focused on the story. Uh, and hopefully me reading it uh, is going to kind of suck you into the story enough to help you get lost and kind of drift off as the story unfolds. So, uh, I hope you can uh, have a great night's sleep to this reading of The Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1. The Man with the White Hair It was close on midnight when a man crossed the Place de la Concorde. In spite of the handsome fur coat which garbed his meager form, there was something essentially weak and paltry about him. A little man with a face like a rat. A man, one would say, who could never play a conspicuous part or rise to prominence in any sphere. And yet, in leaping to such a conclusion, an onlooker would have been wrong. For this man, negligible and inconspicuous as he seemed, played a prominent part in the destiny of the world. In an empire where rats ruled, he was the king of the rats. Even now, an embassy awaited his return but he had business to do first, business of which the embassy was not officially cognizant. His face gleamed white and sharp in the moonlight. There was the least hint of a curve in the thin nose. His father had been a Polish Jew, a journeyman tailor. It was business such as his father would have loved that took him abroad tonight. He came to the Seine, crossed it, and entered one of the less reputable quarters of Paris. Here he stopped before a tall, dilapidated house and made his way up to an apartment on the fourth floor. He had barely time to knock before the door was opened by a woman who had evidently been waiting on his arrival. She gave him no greeting, but helped him off with his overcoat and then led the way into the tall, furnished sitting room. 
The electric light was shaded with dirty pink festoons, and it softened, but could not disguise the girl's face with its mask of crude paint. Could not disguise either the broad magnolian cast of her countenance. There was no doubt of Olga Demaroff's profession, nor her nationality. All is well, little one. All is well, little one. All is well, Boris Ivanovich. He nodded, murmuring, I do not think I have been followed. But there was anxiety in his tone. He went to the window, drawing the curtains aside slightly and peering carefully out. He started away violently. There are two men on the opposite pavement. It looks to me, he broke off and began gnawing at his nails, a habit he had when anxious. The Russian girl was shaking her head with a slow, reassuring action. They were here before you came. All the same, it looks to me as though they were watching this house. Possibly, she admitted indifferently. But then, what of it? Even if they know, it will not be you they will follow from here. A thin, cruel smile came to his lips. No, he admitted, that is true. He mused for a minute or two, and then observed. This damned American, he can look after himself as well as anybody. I suppose so. He went again to the window. Tough customers, he muttered, with a chuckle. Known to the police, I fear. Well, well, I wish Brother Apache good hunting. Olga Demarov shook her head. If the American is the kind of man they say he is, it will take more than a couple of cowardly Apaches to get the better of him. She paused. I wonder. Well, nothing. Only twice this evening a man has passed along this street. A man with white hair. What of it? This. As he passed those two men, he dropped his glove. One of them picked it up and returned it to him. A threadbare device. You mean that the white-haired man is their employer? Something of the kind. The Russian looked alarmed and uneasy. You are sure the parcel is safe? It has not been tampered with. There has been too much talk. Too much talk. He gnawed his nails again. Judge for yourself. She bent to the fireplace, deftly removing the coals. Underneath, from amongst the crumpled balls of newspaper, she selected, from the very middle of an oblong package wrapped round with grimy newspaper, and handed it to the man. Ingenious, he said, with a nod of approval. The apartment has been searched twice. The mattress on my bed was ripped open. It is as I said, he muttered. 
There has been too much talk, this haggling over the price. It was a mistake. He had unwrapped the newspaper. Inside was a small brown paper parcel. This in turn he unwrapped, verified the contents, and quickly wrapped it once more. As he did so, an electric bell rang sharply. The American is punctual, said Olga, with a glance at the clock. She left the room. In a minute she returned, ushering in a stranger, a big, broad-shouldered man whose transatlantic origin was evident. His keen glance went from one to the other. Monsieur Crestnine, he inquired politely. I am he, said Boris. I must apologize for, for the unconventionality of this meeting place. But secrecy is urgent. I cannot afford to be connected with this business in any way. Is that so? said the American politely. I have your word, have I not, that no details of this transaction will be made public? That is one of the conditions of sale. The American nodded. That has already been agreed upon, he said indifferently. Now perhaps you'll produce the goods. You have the money in notes? Yes, replied the other. He did not, however, make any attempt to produce it. After a moment's hesitation, Krasnine gestured toward a small parcel on the table. The American took it up and unrolled the wrapping paper. The contents he took over to a small electric lamp and submitted them to a very thorough examination. Satisfied, he drew from his pocket a thick leather wallet and extracted from it a wad of notes. These he handed to the Russian, who counted them carefully. All right. I thank you, monsieur. Everything is correct. Ah, said the other. He slipped the brown paper parcel negligently into his pocket. He bowed to Olga. Good evening, mademoiselle. Good evening, monsieur Crestnine. He went out, shutting the door behind him. The eyes of the two in the room met. The man passed his tongue over his dry lips. I wonder, will he ever get back to his hotel, he muttered. By common accord, they both turned to the window. They were just in time to see the American emerge into the street below. He turned to the left and marched along at a good pace without once turning his head. Two shadows stole from a doorway and followed noiselessly. Pursuers and pursued vanished into the night. Olga Demeron spoke. He will get back safely, she said. You need not fear, or hope, whichever it is. Why do you think he will be safe? asked Krasnine curiously. 
A man who has made as much money as he could not possibly be a fool, said Olga. And talking of money, she looked significantly at Krasnay. Eh? My share, Boris Ivanovich. With some reluctance, Krasnyan handed over two of the notes. She nodded her thanks with a complete lack of emotion and tucked them away into her stocking. That is good, she remarked with satisfaction. He looked at her curiously. You have no regrets, Olga Vasilovna? Regrets? For what? For what has been in your keeping. There are women, most women I believe, who go mad over such things. She nodded reflectively. Yes, you speak truth there. Most women have that madness. I have not. I wonder now. She broke off. Well, asked the other curiously. The American will be safe with them. Yes, I am sure of that. But afterwards. Eh? What are you thinking of? He will give them, of course, to some woman, said Olga thoughtfully. I wonder what will happen then. She shook herself impatiently and went over to the window. Suddenly, she uttered an exclamation and called to her companion. See, he is going down the street now. The man, I mean. They both gazed down together. A slim, elegant figure was progressing along at a leisurely pace. He wore an opera hat and a cloak. As he passed a street lamp, the light illuminated a thatch of thick white hair. Chapter 2 Monsieur Le Marquis The man with the white hair continued on his course, unhurried, and seemingly indifferent to his surroundings. He took a sigh, turning to the right, and another one to the left. Now and then he hummed a little air to himself. Suddenly he stopped dead and listened intently. He had heard a certain sound. It might have been the bursting of a tire, or it might have been a shot. A curious smile played round his lips for a minute. Then he resumed his leisurely walk. On turning a corner, he came upon a scene of some activity. A representative of the law was making notes in a pocketbook and one or two late passerby had collected on the spot. To one of these, the man with the white hair made a polite request for information. Something has been happening, yes? Ma oui, monsieur. Two Apaches set upon an elderly American gentleman. They did him no injury? No indeed, the man laughed. The American, he had a revolver in his pocket, and before they could attack him, he fired shots so closely round them that they took alarm and fled. The police, as usual, arrived too late. 
Ah, said the inquirer. He displayed no emotion of any kind. Placidly and unconcernedly, he resumed his nocturnal strolling. Presently he crossed the Seine and came into the richer areas of the city. It was some twenty minutes later that he came to a stop before a certain house in a quiet but aristocratic thoroughfare. The shop, for shop it was, was a restrained and unpretentious one. D. Papopoulos, dealer in antiques, was so known to fame that he needed no advertisement. And indeed, most of his business was not done over a counter. Monsieur Papopoulos had a very handsome apartment of his own overlooking the Champs-Élysées, and it might reasonably be supposed that he would have been found there and not at his place of business at such an hour. But the man with the white hair seemed confident of success as he pressed the obscurely placed bell, having first given a quick glance up and down the deserted street. His confidence was not misplaced. The door opened, and a man stood in the aperture. He wore gold rings in his ears, and was of a swarthy cast of countenance. Good evening, said the stranger. Your master is within. The master is here, but he does not see chance visitors at this time of night, growled the other. I think he will see me. Tell him that his friend, Monsieur le Marquis, is here. The man opened the door a little wider and allowed his visitor to enter. The man who gave him his name as Monsieur le Marquis had shielded his face with his hand as he spoke. When the manservant returned with the information that Monsieur Papopoulos would be pleased to receive the visitor, a further change had taken place in the stranger's appearance. The manservant must have been very unobservant or very well trained, for he betrayed no surprise at the small black satin mask which hid the other's features. Leading the way to a door at the end of the hall, he opened it and announced in a respectful murmur, Monsieur le Marquis, The figure which rose to receive this strange guest was an imposing one. There was something venerable and patriarchal about Monsieur Papopoulos. He had a high-domed forehead and a beautiful white beard. His manner had in it something ecclesiastical and benign. My dear friend, said Monsieur Papopoulos. He spoke in French and his tones were rich and unctuous. I must apologize, said the visitor, for the lateness of the hour. Not at all, not at all, said Monsieur Papopoulos. An interesting time of night. You have had, perhaps, an interesting evening? Not personally, said Monsieur le Marquis. Not personally, repeated Monsieur Papopoulos. No, no, of course not. And there is news, eh? He cast a sharp glance sideways at the other. 
a glance that was not ecclesiastical or benign in the least. There is no news. The attempt failed. I hardly expected anything else. Quite so, said Monsieur Papopoulos. Anything crude. He waved his hand to express his intense distaste for crudity in any form. There was indeed nothing crude about Monsieur Papopoulos, nor about the goods he handled. He was well known in the most European courts, and kings called him Demetrius in a friendly manner. He had the reputation for the most exquisite discretion. That, together with the nobility of his aspect, had carried him through several very questionable transactions. The direct attack, said Monsieur Papopoulos. He shook his head. It answers sometimes, but very seldom. The other shrugged his shoulders. It saves time, he remarked, and to fail costs nothing, or next to nothing. The other plan will not fail. Ah, said Monsieur Papopoulos, looking at him keenly. The other nodded slowly. I have great confidence in your, er, reputation, said the antique dealer. Monsieur le Marquis smiled gently. I think I may say, he murmured, that your confidence will not be misplaced. You have unique opportunities, said the other, with a note of envy in his voice. I will make them, said Monsieur le Marquis. He rose and took off the cloak, which he had thrown carelessly on the back of a chair. I will keep you informed, Monsieur Papopoulos, through the usual channels, but there must be no hitch in your arrangements. Monsieur Papopoulos was pained. There is never a hitch in my arrangements, he complained. The other smiled, and without any further word of adieu, he left the room, closing the door behind him. Monsieur Papopoulos remained in thought for a moment, stroking his venerable white beard, and then moved across to a second door which opened inwards. As he turned the handle, a young woman, who only too clearly had been leaning against it with her ear to the keyhole, stumbled headlong into the room. Monsieur Papopoulos displayed neither surprise nor concern. It was evidently all quite natural to him. Well, Zia, he asked. I did not hear him go, explained Zia. She was a handsome young woman, built on Junoesque lines, with dark flashing eyes and such a general air of resemblance to Monsieur Papopoulos that it was easy to see they were father and daughter. It is annoying, she continued vexedly, that one cannot see through a keyhole and hear through it at the same time. It has often annoyed me, said Monsieur Papopoulos, with great simplicity. So that is Monsieur Le Marquis, said Zia slowly. 
Does he always wear a mask, Father? Always. There was a pause. It is the rubies, I suppose, asked Zia. Her father nodded. What do you think, my little one, he inquired, with a hint of amusement in his beady black eyes. Of Monsieur le Marquis? Yes. I think, said Zia, slowly, that it is a very rare thing to find a well-bred Englishman who speaks French as well as that. Ah, said Monsieur Papopoulos, so that is what you think. As usual, he did not commit himself, but he regarded Zia with benign approval. I thought too, said Zia, that his head was an odd shape. Massive, said her father, a trifle massive, but then that effect is always created by a wig. They both looked at each other and smiled. Chapter 3 Heart of Fire Rufus Van Alden passed through the revolving doors of the Savoy and walked to the reception desk. The desk clerk smiled a respectful greeting. Pleased to see you back again, Mr. Van Alden, he said. The American millionaire nodded his head in casual greeting. Everything all right, he asked. Yes, sir. Major Knighton is upstairs in the suite now. Van Alden nodded again. Any mail, he vouchsafed. They have all been sent up, Mr. Van Alden. Oh, wait a minute. He dived into a pigeonhole and produced a letter. Just come this minute, he explained. Rufus Van Alden took the letter from him, and as he saw the handwriting, a woman's flowing hand, his face was suddenly transformed. The harsh contours of it softened, and the hard line of his mouth relaxed. He looked a different man. He walked across to the lip with the letter in his hand and the smile still on his lips. In the drawing room of his suite, a young man was sitting at a desk, nimbly sorting correspondence with the ease born of long practice. He sprang up as Van Alden entered. Hello, Knighton. Glad to see you back, sir. Have a good time. So-so, said the millionaire unemotionally. Paris is rather a one-horse city nowadays. Still, I got what I went over for. He smiled to himself rather grimly. You usually do, I believe, said the secretary, laughing. That's so, agreed the other. He spoke in a matter-of-fact manner as one stating a well-known fact. Throwing off his heavy overcoat, he advanced to the desk. Anything urgent? I don't think so, sir. Mostly the usual stuff. I have not quite finished sorting it out. Van Alden nodded briefly. 
He was a man who seldom expressed either blame or praise. His methods with those he employed were simple. He gave them a fair trial and dismissed promptly those who were inefficient. His selections of people were unconventional. Knighton, for instance, he had met casually at a Swiss resort two months previously. He had approved of the fellow, looked up his war record, and found in it the explanation of the limp with which he walked. Knighton had made no secret of the fact that he was looking for a job, and indeed diffidently asked the millionaire if he knew of any available post. Van Alden remembered, with a grim smile of amusement, the young man's complete astonishment when he had been offered the post of secretary to the great man himself. But, but I have no experience of business, he had stammered. That doesn't matter a cuss, Van Alden had replied. I have got three secretaries already to attend to that kind of thing. But I am likely to be in England for the next six months, and I want an Englishman who, well, knows the ropes and can attend to the social side of things for me. So far, Van Alden had found his judgment confirmed. Knighton had proved quick, intelligent, and resourceful, and had a distinct charm of manner. The secretary indicated three or four letters placed by themselves on the top of the desk. It might perhaps be as well, sir, if you glance at these, he suggested. The top one is about the Colton Agreement. But Rufus Van Alden held up a protesting hand. I am not going to look at a darn thing tonight, he declared. They can all wait till morning. Except this one, he added, looking down at the letter he held in his hand. And again, that strange, transforming smile stole over his face. Richard Knighton smiled sympathetically. Mrs. Kettering, he murmured. She rang up yesterday and today. She seems very anxious to see you at once, sir. Does she now? The smile faded from the millionaire's face. He ripped open the envelope which he held in his hand and took out the enclosed sheet. As he read it, his face darkened. His mouth set grimly in the line which Wall Street knew so well, and his brows knit themselves ominously. Knighton turned tactfully away and went on opening letters and sorting them. A muttered oath escaped the millionaire and his clenched fist hit the table sharply. I'll not stand for this, he muttered to himself. Poor little girl, it's a good thing she has her old father behind her. He walked up and down the room for some minutes his brows drawn together in a scowl. Knighton still bent assiduously over the desk. Suddenly, Van Alden came to an abrupt halt. He took up his overcoat from the chair where he had thrown it. Are you going out again, sir? Yes, I'm going round to see my daughter. If Colton's people ring up, Tell them to go to the devil, said Van Alden. Very well, said the secretary unemotionally. 
Then Alden had his overcoat on by now. Cramming his hat upon his head, he went towards the door. He paused with his hand upon the handle. You are a good fellow, Knighton, he said. You don't worry me when I am rattled. Knighton smiled a little, but made no reply. Ruth is my only child, said Van Alda, and there is no one on earth who knows quite what she means to me. A faint smile irradiated his face. He slipped his hand into his pocket. Care to see something, Knighton? He came back towards the secretary. From his pocket, he drew out a parcel carelessly wrapped in brown paper. He tossed off the wrapping and disclosed a big, shabby red velvet case. In the center of it were some twisted initials surmounted by a crown. He snapped the case open, and the secretary drew in his breath sharply. Against the slightly dingy white of the interior, the stones glowed like blood. My God, sir, said Knighton, are they, are they real? Then Alden laughed a quiet little cackle of amusement. I don't wonder at your asking that. Amongst these rubies are the three largest in the world. Catherine of Russia wore them, Knighton. That center one is known as Heart of Fire. It's perfect, not a flaw in it. But, the secretary murmured, they must be worth a fortune. Four or five hundred thousand dollars, said Van Alden nonchalantly, and that is apart from the historical interest. And you carry them about like that, loose in your pocket. Van Alden laughed amusedly. I guess so. You see, they are my little present for Ruthie. The secretary smiled discreetly. I can understand now Mrs. Kettering's anxiety over the telephone, he murmured. But Van Alden shook his head. A hard look returned to his face. You are wrong there, he said. She doesn't know about these. They are my little surprise for her. He shut the case and began slowly to wrap it up again. It's a hard thing, Knighton, he said. How little one can do for those one loves. I can buy a good portion of the earth for Ruth, if it would be any use to her. But it isn't. I can hang these things around her neck and give her a moment or two's pleasure, maybe. But... He shook his head. When a woman is not happy in her home. He left the sentence unfinished. The secretary nodded discreetly. He knew, none better, the reputation of the honorary Derek Kettering. Van Alden laughed. Slipping the parcel back in his coat pocket, he nodded to Knighton and left the room. Chapter 4 On Curzon Street The Honorary Mrs. Derek Kettering lived in Curzon Street. 
The butler who opened the door recognized Rufus Van Alden at once and permitted himself a discreet smile of greeting. He led the way upstairs to the big double drawing room on the first floor. A woman who was waiting by the window started up with a cry. Why, Dad, if that isn't too good for anything. I've been telephoning Major Knighton all day to try to get a hold of you, but he couldn't say for sure when you were expected back. Ruth Kettering was 28 years of age. Without being beautiful, or in the real sense of the word even pretty, she was striking looking because of her coloring. Van Alden had been called carrots and ginger in this time, and Ruth's hair was almost pure auburn. With it went dark eyes and very black lashes, the effect somewhat enhanced by art. She was tall and slender and moved well. At a careless glance, it was the face of a Raphael Madonna. Only if one looked closely did one perceive the same line of jaw and chin as in Van Alden's face, bespeaking the same hardness and determination. It suited the man, but suited the woman less well. From her childhood upward, Ruth Van Alden had been accustomed to having her own way, and anyone who had ever stood up against her soon realized that Rufus Van Alden's daughter never gave in. Knighton told me you'd phoned him, said Van Alden, I only got back from Paris half an hour ago. What's all this about Derek? Ruth Kettering flushed angrily. It's unspeakable. It's beyond all limits, she cried. He, he doesn't seem to listen to anything I say. There was bewilderment as well as anger in her voice. He'll listen to me, said the millionaire grimly. Ruth went on. I've hardly seen him for the last month. He goes about everywhere with that woman. With what woman? Mirelle. She dances at the Parthenon, you know. Van Alden nodded. I was down at Leckenberry last week. I, I spoke to Lord Leckenberry. He was awfully sweet to me. Sympathized entirely. He said he'd give Derek a good talking to. Ah, said Van Alden. What do you mean by ah, Dad? Just what you think I mean, Ruthie. Poor old Leckenberry is a washout. Of course he sympathized with you. Of course he tried to soothe you down. Having got his son and heir married to the daughter of one of the richest men in the States, he naturally doesn't want to mess the thing up. But he's got one foot in the grave already. Everyone knows that, and anything he may say will cut darn little ice with Derek. Can't you do anything, Dad? urged Ruth, after a minute or two. I might, said the millionaire. He waited a second reflectively, and then went on. There are several things I might do, but there's only one that will be any real good. How much pluck have you got, Ruthie? She stared at him. He nodded back at her. 
I mean just what I say. Have you got the grit to admit to all the world that you've made a mistake? There's only one way out of this mess, Ruthie. Cut your losses and start afresh. You mean... Divorce. Divorce? Ben Alden smiled dryly. You say that word, Ruth, as though you'd never heard it before, and yet your friends are doing it all around you every day. Oh, I know that, but... She stopped, biting her lip. Her father nodded comprehendingly. I know, Ruth. You're like me. You can't bear to let it go. But I've learned, and you've got to learn, that there are times when it's the only way. I might find ways of whistling Derek back to you, but it would all come to the same in the end. He's no good, Ruth. He's rotten through and through. And mind you, I blame myself for ever letting you marry him. We were kind of set on having him, and he seemed in earnest about turning over a new leaf. Well, I crossed you once, honey. He did not look at her as he said the last words. Had he had done so, he might have seen the swift color that came up in her face. You did, she said in a hard voice. I was too darn soft-hearted to do it a second time. I can't tell you how I wish I had, though. You've led a poor kind of life for the last few years, Ruth. It has not been very agreeable, agreed Mrs. Kettering. That's why I say to you that this thing has got to stop. He brought his hand down with a bang on the table. You may have a hankering after the fellow still. Cut it out. Face facts. Derek Kettering married you for your money. That's all there is to it. Get rid of him, Ruth. Ruth Kettering looked down at the ground for some moments. Then she said, without raising her head, supposing he doesn't consent. Van Alden looked at her in astonishment. He won't have a say in the matter. She flushed and bit her lip. No, no, of course not. I only meant... She stopped. Her father eyed her keenly. What did you mean? I meant... She paused, choosing her words carefully. He may not take it lying down. The millionaire's chin shot out grimly. Do you mean he'll fight the case? Let him. But as a matter of fact, you're wrong. He won't fight. Any solicitor he consults will tell him he hasn't got a leg to stand upon. You don't think, she hesitated, I mean, out of sheer spite against me, he might, well, try to make it awkward. Her father looked at her in some astonishment. Fight the case, you mean? He shook his head. Very unlikely. You see, he would have to have something to go upon. Mrs. Kettering did not answer. Van Alden looked at her sharply. Come, Ruth, out with it. There's something troubling you. What is it? Nothing. Nothing at all. 
but her voice was unconvincing. You are dreading the publicity, eh? Is that it? You leave it to me. I'll put the whole thing through so smoothly that there will be no fuss at all. Very well, Dad, if you really think it's the best thing to be done. Got a fancy for the fellow still, Ruth? Is that a... No. The word came with no uncertain emphasis. Van Alden seemed satisfied. He patted his daughter on the shoulder. It will be all right, little girl. Don't you worry, Annie. Now, let's forget about all this. I have brought you a present from Paris. For me? Something very nice? I hope you'll think so, said Van Alden, smiling. He took the parcel from his coat pocket and handed it to her. She unwrapped it eagerly and snapped open the case. A long-drawn O oh, came from her lips. Ruth Kettering loved jewels, always had done so. Dad, how, how wonderful. Rather in a class by themselves, aren't they? Said the millionaire with satisfaction. You like them, eh? Like them? Dad, they're unique. How did you get a hold of them? Van Alden smiled. Ah, that's my secret. They had to be brought privately, of course. They are rather well known. See that big stone in the middle? You've heard of it before, maybe. That's the historic Heart of Fire. Heart of Fire, repeated Mrs. Kettering. She had taken the stones from the case and was holding them against her breast. The millionaire watched her. He was thinking of the series of women who had worn the jewels. The heartaches, the despairs, the jealousies. Heart of Fire, like all famous stones, had left behind a trail of tragedy and violence. Held in Ruth Kettering's assured hand, it seemed to lose its potency of evil. With her cool, equable poise, this woman of the Western world seemed a negation to tragedy or heartburnings. Ruth returned the stones to their case. Then, jumping up, she flung her arms around her father's neck. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dad. They are wonderful. You do give me the most marvelous presents always. That's all right, said Van Alden, patting her shoulder. You are all I have, you know, Ruthie. You will stay to dinner, won't you, Father? I don't think so. You were going out, weren't you? Yes, but I can easily put that off. Nothing very exciting. No, said Van Alden. Keep your engagement. I've got a good deal to attend to. See you tomorrow, my dear. Perhaps if I phone you, we can meet at Galbraith's. Messrs. Galbraith, Galbraith, Cuthbertson, and Galbraith were Van Alden's London solicitors. Very well, Dad, she hesitated. I suppose it, this, won't keep me from going to the Riviera. 
when are you off? On the 14th. Oh, that will be all right. These things take a long time to mature. By the way, Ruth, I shouldn't take those rubies abroad if I were you. Leave them at the bank. Mrs. Kettering nodded. We don't want to have you robbed and murdered for the sake of heart of fire, said the millionaire jocosely. And yet you carried it about in your pocket loose, retorted his daughter, smiling. Yes. Something, some hesitation caught her attention. What is it, Dad? Nothing, he smiled, thinking of a little adventure in mine in Paris. An adventure? Yes, the night I bought these things. He made a gesture towards the jewel case. Oh, do tell me. Nothing to tell, Ruthie. Some fellows got a bit fresh, and I shot them, and they got off. That's all. She looked at him with some pride. You're a tough proposition, Dad. You bet I am, Ruthie. He kissed her affectionately and departed. On arriving back at the Savoy, he gave a curt order to Nighton. Get hold of a man called Gobi. You'll find his address in my private book. He's to be here tomorrow at half past nine. Yes, sir. I also want to see Mr. Kettering. Run him to earth for me if you can. Try his club. At any rate, get hold of him somehow and arrange for me to see him tomorrow morning. Better make it late-ish, about twelve. His sort aren't early risers. The secretary nodded in comprehension of these instructions. Van Alden gave himself into the hands of this valet. His bath was prepared, and as he lay luxuriating in the hot water, his mind went back over the conversation with his daughter. On the whole, he was well satisfied. His keen mind had long since accepted the fact that divorce was the only possible way out. Ruth had agreed to the proposed solution with more readiness than he had hoped for. Yeah, in spite of her acquiescence, he was left with a vague sense of uneasiness. Something about her manner, he felt, had not been quite natural. He frowned to himself. Maybe I'm fanciful, he muttered. And yeah, I bet there's something she has not told me. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.